0: I'm not sure every Sunday when Pastor Ben or Pastor Bill gives the pastoral prayer how much we really listen and pray along with him as he as he speaks as he prays over us, but if you ever are afforded by the grace of God the opportunity to speak from the pulpit, you'll ever more listen carefully and pray along those words as pastor ben prays. Um, as i prepared and as, as i gathered my information as i actually brought along some other things that um, that the lord has blessed me with my mom gifted me this book for christmas by fb meyer light of life's duties I've uh, gleaned some information that I would like to share with you from this book a little bit later, towards the end of the sermon. But I also had to laugh a little bit as I thought, you know, as you as you prepare and as you're going through things, you um, think about occurrences that happen that you might have witnessed or may even been a part of that you just have to laugh at. And uh, I remember watching a. Um, I don't know if it was a podcast or whatever it was, but for those of you that are um, old oh man, now his name slips my mind, James White. If you know of the apologist James White, as he, a lot of times as he uh, debates other uh, people that represent other religious beliefs, um, I was watching one time as he was debating this Catholic priest. And the Catholic priests are both of the, the beta set up. And they, each one has a table in front of them, and James White is sitting there with just the Word of God in front of him, his Bible, and the Catholic priest is over there, and he's got four or five different books. And as they're debating, um, James White is just going through Scripture, just you know everything he says, he's he's backing up with the Word of God, and the, the Catholic priest is pulling this book and that book and that book. And I had to, had to think of myself in that light as I brought along my little book. <laughs> I had to think of myself in that vein a little bit, but, but, but as I've I've read um, from F. B. Meyer, this this little little short little book here, of course it um, it backs up the Word of God. It's um, written in in a in, in a way that's proven to be the gospel message, and so I will share with you from that a little bit later. I also like to say that. Um, I don't think there's anyone that receives more of a blessing when preaching than the preacher himself. At least in my case, I know it's true for there's never a time when you seem to dig more earnestly in God's word than when you're preparing um, a sermon. Um, This morning as I as I woke, I I slept hard last night for one reason. I don't think I slept that hard in a long time, but I had a good sleep. But as I Awoke, I woke up. My phone's vibrating, and of course it's Pastor Ben wanting the questions and the, the the sermon title. And and you know it's it's kind of funny that that you can write a sermon. And and one of the hardest parts, honestly, one of the hardest parts being coming up with a title. As I had to sit through and I, I just rolling through my mind, you know, a title. And and one I came up with is. Um, that the Lord blessed me with, I should say, is finding satisfaction in God's word. Emphasis being on contentment. Satisfaction in God's word. Is is he your all in all? Is God's word everything that you view as a need? Is it actually what you live your life by? Is it... Is God? Is Jesus Christ? Is is He whom you seek every morning when you get up? Is He your first thought? Is He the first? Is He the thing that you think about when you're thinking of nothing? Is 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 He? Is does Jesus fulfill you in every possible way? Are you content in Jesus Christ? Um, now to put a little context around this, the scripture is um, for your. So you can read along with me. It's out of Philippians. Uh, epistle written by Paul. The Apostle Paul. Philippians 4. Um, specifically verses 10 through 20. Or 10 to the remainder of the, the chapter. And I'll, I need to find my way there myself. This epistle, of course. The Apostle Paul is um, he's in prison. Um, we know this from... Acts 16, we know that um, Paul and his companions, uh, Luke, Silas, Timothy, um, were called to, to go to Macedonia. That Remember, if, if we go back to Acts 16, that um, Paul, he, he wanted to go in one direction, but yet the, the Holy Spirit forbid him, and, and Paul had a dream, and there was a man... Calling him to come this way, that they needed help, and so Paul and his companions earnestly they 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 gather their things, or, you know whatever it is, and they head that way. He's obedient to the calling of, of God, and so they they set sail. They they head over, um, and and thus when um, they arrive there in the, the town of uh, the city of Philip of uh, Philippi, which. Um, from all accounts that I've read, through all the letters that Paul has written. He wrote, what, 13 in the New Testament, which is quite a number. I believe it's 13. I know I'll be um, corrected. And, and, and I, I pray, that's another thing that I, I wanted to mention, um, as, as you continue reading in the books of Acts, not long after this, as Paul visits Berea, he says, you know, he's, he's thankful, he says, because the Bereans, he says, you know, pray do as the Bereans do. You know, search the Word of God. After, after someone preaches or speaks the Word of God, check the, search the Scriptures to make sure that the truth is expounded. And I pray that you will this morning as well. But Paul meets as he gets there. Um, it's not a man that he first comes in contact with. Mostly as, as he gets there, he, you know, he's finding a place of worship. He's going, he's going to speak, and he goes down by the river there. And it's a lady instead, Lydia. Um, she's a person who works in fabrics, um, and, and so she's um, probably has decent means there. As she's, but she's, you know, we need to be thankful for as as Paul goes into Philippi, as that's his first convert in 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 Europe, which you know we can kind of go along with that. That's kind of a as it's a Roman colony. Um, a lot of Gentiles there, mostly Gentiles. And then Paul goes on. Remember, he, he comes across the, the girl with a demonic spirit that he expels. And, of course, he finds himself in trouble. As, as we know, any time we take money out of someone's pocket, we find ourselves in trouble. We, have, we find people that, that we might think that would be for us to be against us. Okay, And then not long after that, he's, he's jailed along with Silas. We know the story of the jailer there. And so this is, uh, that's just a little bit of a backdrop of where we are and how Paul got to Philippi. And um, this is, um, as he writes this letter to the Philippians, remember he's in Rome and he's in, he's in prison. And it's been, from all accounts that one I could read, different, um, you know, different uh, pieces of information, to tell you different timelines. But for the most part, it's been about a decade. It's been about 10 years that's passed, and um, and so Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, and he's most most grateful. He's most um, re- he rejoices, and he's, he's 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 very pleased with with um, the church there in Philippi, and he writes this letter to them, an encouraging letter, and um, it's kind of it's kind of odd. It may seem to us that this man who's in jail in in, in Rome and for all accounts, at any time Nero, the the one in the, the Pharaoh, the one in charge there, could um, he could, you know, be put to death at any time. I'm sure, you know, being in jail and prison during, especially during Paul's time, I'm sure wasn't a fun thing, uh, fun time for you. And yet Paul is rejoicing, he's actually writing a letter of encouragement and rejoicing in the church at Philippi. That they're they've remained faithful and that they've that they've supported him and that they've sent him gifts and they, they're thinking about him, and he's, he's rejoicing in them. And he's writing a letter to them. And not only that, he sends Epaphroditus, he sends, um, and, he, and he says he's gonna send Timothy a little bit later, if you, as you read through the book of uh, Philippians, to them as a benefit to them. Paul's heart is always for other people. And I think that's one of the, the, the things that, that draws me um, to, to Paul as, as one of my favorite apostles is that and not that the others didn't but he always had a heart for others he always was even and and it's in Philippians even when before his before his uh, renewed heart before Christ um, changed his heart and gave him eyes to see with and ears to hear with he was, he was very tenacious and about trying to fulfill the law, even though he was going about it all wrong, as, as we know, and as Christ called him to the charge of, of preaching the gospel to the lost. And so here we are in Philippians, and I would like to, um, we're going to read through, and since it's, it's not too long, I'm going to read through the entire chapter 4, even though we're going to focus my sermon starting at verse 10. But here we go. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Notice how he speaks to them in such a brotherly, loving fashion, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, Philippi is not a perfect place as no place on earth is now after the fall. They had their problems as well as the church does today. But yet, they're sisters in Christ, and, and he's encouraging them to work out their differences for the glory of God. He says in, in a, a verse that's well known, most of you probably already know verse 4, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and God, of, and the God of peace will be with you. And I want to, I want to really, I want you to remember one thing about that verse. we in verse nine, where Paul says, "What you have learned." you have learned that's going to be a key component in in my sermon today is is that these things sometimes take time god works in us in his own timetable not ours and some things have to be learned and we learn them from god's word through the holy spirit and he says practice these things so we have to learn them and then we have to put them to use it's no good just to read for the sake of reading to turn pages. We, we, we put them to use. We take them to heart. Then in verse 10, which is where I will begin uh, preaching from, it says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, so we will go back to the book of Acts there, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then he finishes there with his final greetings. As I thought about contentment, I was trying to come up with an illustration to kind of give you a sense of what contentment may be in our minds. And um, I don't mind telling you that I stole this from someone, don't even know his name, but, but it's not mine, it comes from someone else. But this is an illustration I thought was, um, was, was, it's good. It says, the story is told about a pilot who always looked down intently on a certain valley in Appalachians when the plane passed overhead. One day his co-pilot asked, what's so interesting about that spot? The pilot replied, see that stream? Well, when I was a kid, I used to sit down down there on a log and fish. Every time an airplane flew over, I would look up and wish I were flying. Now I look down and wish I were fishing. Contentment. We're always looking for something that makes us happier. We're always looking for the things that are circumstantial. Um, what pleases us at the moment. My friends, there's only one thing that can please you at all times, in all situations, whether you're abounding or whether you're abased, and that's in the Word of God that's provided that, this, that you receive through the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that withstands all circumstances. For God is immutable. His Word is forever. He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's all in all, he's all you need. And so the question I wrote at the end of that is, and and I was, really I was thinking to myself, are we ever satisfied with our portion that God has supplied to us? Are we ever satisfied? It's always tempting to think that others have it better than we do. And that if we had just a little more, everything would be fine. But contentment cannot be achieved by increasing possessions. Nothing will ever be enough if we're living a life of worldliness. If we're looking to the world for the things to please, the inner soul, the complete person. If you're looking to the world for that, you'll always be dissatisfied. Um, I did a little research thinking about things When we think of contentment, the first thing that comes to mind, to me anyway, and most people you talk to, especially I teach kids, as you guys already know that, um, around 10 to 12 years in age, you know, (laughs) some may be a little bit older, a little bit younger. And if you talk about things in the sense of what is life about, what are you looking for, you know, what are you seeking after, most of the time it'll be something related to money, you know, or some job, some occupation that leads to wealth. And so we, a lot of times, tie our, commit, our contentment into things that bring us wealth because we think that that will bring us contentment, that that will make us happy. Um, compared to the world, the other countries of the world, 56% of Americans were in the world's high, in, high income group and that's back in 2011 living on more than $50 per day compared with only 7% of the other countries of the world. So here we are in the land of plenty, truly. The Lord has blessed our country. I'm not saying that we are the most godly country in the world. Um, As we know, many people in the world say that they're Christians, but it's their definition of Christianity that will tell the story there. And so you have to take that in that light and that vein. But 56% of Americans were in the world's high-income group. Um, And so when we look at that, uh, we should be a content nation. Um, Younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe Jesus was God. There was a survey done, and it says the historicity of Jesus may not be in question for most Americans, but people are much less confident in the divinity of Jesus. It said that most adults, not quite 6 in 10, believe Jesus was God. So only about half believed that Jesus was God. And then in 2012, uh, the study, as it continued, one of the significant findings was that 70% of all Americans believe that many religions can lead to eternal life, including 65% of all self-identifying Christians. So people that identify themselves as Evangelical Christians, 65% believe that there's many ways to heaven, to God. Furthermore, millennials are the only generation among whom fewer than half believe Jesus was God, that's 48%. And one-third of young adults, that's around 35%, say instead that Jesus was merely a religious or spiritual leader. While 17% aren't sure what he was sad and yet I, I couldn't help but think of Elijah one of my favorite as you may already know as well Old Testament uh, prophets um, there was a time when he felt he was the only one that was for God and yet God let him know that he had many more that were around him and within the area that he had saved, that were set aside for him, that were in Christ and for Christ. So what is contentment? I wanna define that, and I said, then the second question is, well, if we know what contentment is, what is discontentment? So I just came up with some dictionary definitions. One I came up with was to be free from care because of satisfaction with what is already one's own. To be free from care because of satisfaction with what is already one's own. The Hebrew means simply to be pleased. The Greek brings out the full force in the word as in 1 Timothy 6.8, Hebrews 13.5, 1 Timothy 6.6. Contentment is is more inward than satisfaction. The former is a habit of permanent state of mind and the latter has to do with some particular occurrence or object. And then my definition, of things that from studying, from seeking the Holy Spirit's um, guidance and, and what it means to be a Christian to me, I wrote, if you are a Christian, then you are content in Christ Jesus. You are satisfied and completely fulfilled in the work of the cross. There's nothing that can be added to your being than what Christ has given. If you are content, you have assurance of the promises of God. The world has no bearing in what Christ Jesus has accomplished for you. To be discontent means your life and your hopes are circumstantial. Christ is not your all in all. You have a works mentality towards the consummation of all things. You can never have enough and neither can you ever do enough. That's discontentment. And my friends, I I'm in family brothers and sisters I'm afraid that a lot of church-going folks, let alone those that do not attend the church, are very discontent in their lives, for they seek after the things of the world and not after the things that are eternal. And the only thing that can be immutable, the only thing that can fully satisfy one is the one that's immutable, the one that's all-knowing and it's all-powerful. So my point one is, contentment is learned. Remember I went back and I think it was verse 9 I told you to take note of that. Contentment is learned. And so I'm going to read back. I'm going to start at verse 10 this time. I'm going to read back and and try to pull this out. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now here goes verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned... There it is. In whatever situation, I am to be content. You see, I don't think Paul at all times was content. You remember, Paul also had a thorn in the side that he prayed three times for God to remove. And God gave him a message. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Paul was seeking contentment. And something else where God wanted him to keep his focus on Christ, to be content in Christ, to be content in the mission that Christ had for Paul, to give the gospel to the world. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. So he's he's been through these things. Paul had been through some very difficult situations. We know he was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was jailed, he was tortured. Um, he, he, was, he was put through all these things. So he, he knew how to be abased and he knew how to abound. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. Remember, he grew up probably in a fairly wealthy household. Um, he was trained by, the, by probably one of the best theologians of his days as a Pharisee. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. See, here he is in prison here in Philippi. And and Paul, for the most part, what would seem to be a time of not abounding but being abased, being brought low, he's abounding in the gift that the Philippians have sent to him. He's, he's, He's thankful. He's fulfilled. And I can imagine those jailers as they're with him, as some may have even been chained to him at times, how they received the word, one way or the other. (laughs) Maybe that's what we we need at times. But he says, I have learned the secret of place." So he learned the secret. And he says, and and to me, verse 13 kind of tells the secret in my mind. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now I know that verse has become quite popular by athletes, by different people of the world. But I don't think it means quite what they think it means but Paul says I can do all things through him who strengthens me I also wrote underneath I render this not only as through him but also in him who strengthens me I think about all the going back to the beginning Abraham obviously God he was a pagan living in a pagan land God called him he's a father of our patriarchs, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, Elijah, the disciples, we can keep going on and on, that all of these people called of God had a learning curve they had to go through. One that I think of the most might even be the apostle Peter, as he was so apt to kind of jump into things and open his mouth when he shouldn't have. How many of us have that problem? I know I do. My wife will shake her head and say, yes that I do. I'm sure she might not now, but she'll, but all in just, just fun, just teasing. But but we all tend to say things at an inappropriate time sometimes. And sometimes we say it not thinking to be, um, at, to put it as a put down or to be derogatory, but we just speak without thinking. We think without praying. We think without seeking God's guidance. We, we say things and then we, we realize after we said it that it was the wrong thing to say, as we know Jesus rebuked Peter several times, did he not? But he also restored him. Sometimes we have to be brought low in, all, in other, in, in other words, we have to be brought low in order to be raised up again. And so, so this is where we're at, that we have to be, we have to learn it. It's, a, it's something that's learned. It doesn't come naturally. And, and because of our sinful nature, discontent comes naturally. Being content does not, but discontent does. Covetousness. How many of us have to be trained to covet something? It just happened automatically, didn't we? we saw it and we wanted it. Or we, we thought it and we wanted it. Idolatry. Think of these things that just come naturally. Sexual Im- immorality. You don't have to go out and teach it. Hedonism, etc. We already have wicked hearts. Jeremiah seventy-nine says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Non-Christians will say, because it's the way I feel. In other words, they're trying to justify their sin. They're discontent, and they know it but they would rather be discontent and receive the gifts of the world than receive the things of eternal life. Matthew 15, 19 says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And that's why, my friends, we need a new life. That's why we need what Romans 12:2 tells us. Paul says in Romans 12, 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. You have to be transformed. You have to have a complete makeover, a redo, a restart, a rebirth. Jesus explains that real clearly to Nicodemus. Remember, in I believe it's John 6. So I could be wrong, but it's... It's in the book, it's in in John 3, thank you, brother, John 3. He he explains it very clearly that you have to be born again, remembering the the conversation with Nicodemus. Charles Spurgeon says this, one of my favorite um, preachers of past time. Ill weeds grow apace, covetousness, discontent, and murmuring are as natural to man as thorns are to the soil. You have no need to sow thistles and brambles. They come up naturally enough because they are indigenous to earth, upon which rests a curse. So you have no need to teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. But the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. They must be learned. If we would have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be the garden and all the gardeners care. Now, contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it. And even then, we must be specially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace which God has sown in it. What an amen to that. I've, I don't know. what Charles Spurgeon just has a way of speaking God's word straight to my heart. He has a way of, of saying it that speaks to me as a, individually that just makes the most, that just, just strikes it home. And, and I've always loved, man, he says it so wonderfully. I, I wish I was that eloquent, but the Lord has blessed us differently and given us different gifts, and I praise the Lord for the Charles Spurgeons of the world. Remember point one is that contentment has to be learned. Point two is contentment has to be cultivated. It has to be brought along. It says it has to be nourished by the word of God and through prayer. How is your prayer life? When you get up in the morning, do you you pray? Do you read the word and then pray? I read F.B. Meyer, one of the things I read from uh, an excerpt from his book was if he had, it was kind of, when I first read it, I had to I had to sit there and I had to think a minute. I said, like, wait a minute now. But as he went on and explained it, he said, the two things that you need to do the most of is to pray and to read the word of God. And he said, if you have to choose one of the two, he said, prayer is number two. He says, reading the word of God is number one. For we need to listen first and speak second. How true. I mean, how true is that? Contentment will not grow on its own. We need to be taught to, we we do not need to be taught to covet, but we must be taught to obey and acquiesce to the will of God and God's good pleasure. That's something that we have to, that we bring along through fellowship, through meeting here together as a church, loving one another, forgiving one another. I think that's one that we overlook a lot. We become offended when sometimes it's not an offense given. We may read too much into things, but we need to be a church that's close enough that we can go to one another and speak truthfully and frankly about whatever has been said or whatever is on your mind. And then we can, so just like as, as Paul is writing to the Philippians, as he spoke of the two women who were women who were both in Christ, and he said they needed to work out. Whatever disagreement they had, they need to work that out for the benefit, for the growth of the church and to the glory of God. That happens. We're, 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 we're a people where we have a new nature, but yet we're not in perfection yet. We're still waiting on that to come. And so we need to be a forgiving church. We need to be a sharing church. We need to be one who, who reads God's word first and then prays about it and then we do that together as a group as well, not just individually. And that's, the reason, that's what we do every Sunday, if you think about it. We pray. We sing God's praises. We listen to a sermon that glorifies and dispenses the gospel of Jesus Christ. We discuss it afterwards. And then we go and hopefully we live a life that follows up what was preached that Sunday. So after Paul says that, he gives a commentary. He expounds on what he just said. In verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low. That means abased. It means humility. It means how to be humble. And I know how to abound, to overflow. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, circumstances do not, or they did not, Dictate Paul's joy and faith in Jesus Christ. If they did, he would have quit long before he got to his second missionary journey. The promises and the word of God keeps Paul satisfied when he is abased and keeps him satisfied when he abounds. You see, I think it's a bigger danger. We're in a bigger danger when we abound than when we are abased. I really do. Because when we're abased, when we're going through troubled times, it's almost like the the things that we don't have to be taught that come naturally. We naturally, even the unbeliever, get on his knees at times and pray a prayer to somebody or some higher power for relief of some sort. We don't have to be taught that, but it's when we're riding high, when things are going our way, when we have plenty, when we don't have a need, that we tend to think that we're somehow self-sufficient, that somehow we didn't receive this blessing from God, that somehow it wasn't a gift from heaven, that it was something that we brought along by our own piety, that for some reason that we're so pious and that we're so maybe self-righteous that those are things that we earned, that we deserved. No, if we get what we deserved, we, we, we wouldn't have what we have. We wouldn't have Jesus Christ. We would have the opposite, Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul first says that he knows how to be abased and brought low. And I wrote, do you rejoice when our Father refines us, when he refines you? Do you rejoice in that? Maybe not at first, but I think eventually we do. Um, I know in given the, the task of preaching this morning, um, of course, I'm very thankful to Pastor Ben and Pastor Bill for affording me this opportunity, but also giving me time enough in advance to prepare and, and yet it's a refining thing because I'm I'm here to, to tell you from experience to learn from something that I've learned that it takes a task for you to dig deep. It takes sometimes something to weigh you down for you to have to for you to work through that to, to get to help God, the Holy Spirit to lift that weight off of you. You don't do it yourself, and I, I haven't dug through Scripture in the past six months like I have in the past six days. And, I, and as Pastor Bill joked with me a little bit as I was sitting over there waiting on the on us to start the service, and I'm over there still writing and all, and he, he made he he made me laugh. He said, "You know, you should have started that a little earlier. <laughs> it's a little late for you to write your sermon." And yet, you know. It's, it's true, but how when, when, you're, when you study, when you're in God's Word and you're in prayer and you're reading His Word, how it just continues to work on you and it continues to work within you. Even when you're doing, when you're just sitting around, your mind is placed in the right place. It's placed on God. Your focus is not on the things of what's surrounding you, your circumstances. Man, I'm nervous. You know, who's, you know, who's going to be the Berean that calls me out? You know, I have several in here, straight from Berea. (laughs) And I'm thankful for them. God bless those, for we want to remain true to his word, but I have benefited the most by preparing the sermon than I have in in a long time, and I'm thankful for that. When we are increasing and growing in rank and honor and self-esteem, it is easy to be self-contented. You see, I'm thankful for this because it gets sometimes when I sit there in that seat and I listen to Ben, I listen to to Pastor Bill, Pastor Ben, and it's easy to sit there and sit back and just let it go and just kind of listen and take some notes and kind of half participate, maybe sometimes. Sorry, Pastor Ben. Bill. But it's it's easy to it's easy to do that. But when when God calls you to stand up and speak his word, oh how the, the places change. Oh, how, the, how it, your heart gets right in a hurry. I imagine if, if Kelly could probably say to this, my brother, as he was in the Marine Corps, it's kind of like when his chief drill instructor walks in, how things get a right real fast. <laughs> but I thought about those things. Um, I thought about John the Baptist. You know, as, as Jesus came onto the scene and uh, as John the Baptist, he was preaching the, the, the uh, repentance, baptism of repentance. And Jesus comes along and, and John says, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Remember, John's own followers, John the Baptist, that is, they came to him and were like, you know, John, you know, your, your disciples, they're, they're no longer following you, they're following him. Thinking, what, what's, what's, what's wrong with that? But he says... He must increase and I must decrease. There's a man that knows how to abound. There's a man that knows how to, to, um, to have his path going in the right direction. He's, his eyes are upon Jesus Christ. To hear another man at your own expense is beyond human nature, not become jealous or covetousness or to covet. How easy it is for us to hear someone and we discussed this the other, I think it was the other morning as we met. I get my mornings and nights. When you're off work for a week or so, man, your days and nights get mixed up. It's kind of a good feeling, really. <laughs> but but how it is to when you when we hear someone preach, or as I as I, I've listened to many sermons leading up to this, and I'm, and you almost become, you almost covet. You almost, man, I wish I was blessed with the the skill, with the eloquence to speak as as that man spoke. And yet we must learn, as Paul says, it's learned and it's cultivated, that it's not me that does it. It's not through me anyway. It's the Holy Spirit. You can speak the most eloquent words in the world and, and not really have any substance to it at all. Only if you're speaking the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, 15 through 18 says... Some, and this is Paul speaking to this very point, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." He didn't covet. He wasn't upset. He says, I rejoice. He says, I don't care what prompted them to do it. He says, but the gospel is being preached. God can take what is meant. We can go back to Romans 8, 28, right? And he can take those things and he can make it for good. So he says, let them preach. If if they're preaching the gospel and it's the inerrant word, let him preach. He says, I don't covet that. He says, do it at my expense. Man. The next point I want to bring up is more focused again on how there are many who know how to be a base, but that do not how to abound. And I go back to the passage that Pastor Ben uh, preached to us not long ago about the rich man. In Luke chapter 12 and he told them the parable saying this is Jesus he says the land of a rich man produced plentiful plentifully and he thought to himself what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops and he said I will do this I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul soul you have ample goods laid up for many years relax eat drink be merry But God said to him, fool, fool, (laughs) this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich man didn't know how to abound. He was blessed with plenty. And I assure you, it wasn't of the rich man's doing that he was blessed of plenty. It was a gift from God. Everything that we have is a gift from God. You didn't have anything to do with it. This type of man is vain and is self-exalted. He has become prideful. I remember, it's been years ago now, probably 10 plus, I was at a conference and uh, this pastor's told of a, a little and a little story of that kind of goes along with this. He was he was talking about tithing, and um, he said he had, and this was a true true story. He was saying he had a man in his church who uh, had his own business, and at the time he was making around five hundred dollars a week. And, um, and and the man tithed on a regular basis. He was very faithful, never missed, was always prompt, gave generously. But the man came to, to, to him, and, and they had a discussion. The man, he, he had a problem, he tells the pastor. He says, he says, I want you to pray for me. He says, for I'm having difficulty. He says, for when I made $500 a week, he said, I had no trouble in tithing and giving and being generous, not thinking of a percentage, just giving out of abundance of his heart, of, of what he made that God blessed him with. He said, but now, and this is kind of, Mind-blowing, but he says, now I make near $50,000 a week. And he says, so apparently this man, whatever he did for a living, man, he was blessed, wasn't he? Ah, don't covet. <laughs> but he says, now now I have trouble tithing. And he says, I want you to pray for, for me. And pastor says, you mean right now? And he says, sure. He says, so, well, he said, I'll pray for you. So he said, I started praying for the man. He says, Father, I have a man before me who used to make $500 a week and he had no trouble tithing. Now he has, makes $50,000. You've blessed him generously and he has trouble tithing. Lord, I ask you that you would reduce his salary back to $500 a week so that he could, get, so he could become faithful in the Lord again. Amen. And the man said, no, no, that's not what I meant. So the man wasn't content, was he? He wanted it all for himself. So, so what are the results of not knowing how to abound? First and foremost, I put worldliness. Charles Spurgeon gives an, a little antidote or a little note of, of what it means of not knowing how to abound. He says, When a man finds that his wealth increases, it is a wonder. it is wonderful how gold will stick to his fingers. <laughs> the man who had just enough thought if he had more than he required, he would exceedingly liberal, he would be exceedingly liberal with his newfound wealth. Isn't it frightful how a Christian, when he is gifted by God with bountifulness, that his soul can become shallow and he begins to neglect the spiritual things that have been brought to him by God's grace and mercy. The third thing, this is what I was actually writing when Pastor Bill was joking to me about writing my sermon. I actually, I was adding a, a third thing that, just sitting there, just, in fact, I, I think it was um, from one of the scriptures that Pastor Ben had, had posted for us to read in between the songs or, or right at the beginning. The things that, when we're worldly, that we miss out on, the gifts of God. We miss out on learning patience, waiting upon God. We miss out on the sufficiency of Christ. We miss out on his mercy. We're we're not satisfied in the portion that God has provided. We miss out on being satisfied in what God has given us and being thankful and content in that and making the most of it. I think sometimes we don't realize how big a gift the gift is that he gave to us because in our minds we're coveting something else. But if we really look deep within... It may not be monetary, it may not be of the things of this world, but they're much larger and in a much larger capacity and have a greater effect on the people around us and in our own lives than any amount of money could ever do. I think we miss that. We, we, we backslide. We, we become discontent with the reading of his word. We still we remain babes in Christ, still... Drinking milk and not eating meat. Those are the things that, that happen to us as a result of, of not knowing how to abound in Christ. Philippians chapter 4, 11 through 13 finishing up, it says, "...not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content." Verse 12, "...I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance." I have learned the secret of pl- facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What Paul is saying, in Christ Jesus he knows how to live and live in Christ when abased and when abounding. The next thing Paul is saying, it has to be learned. We learn it through the words of Christ, through his through the words of the Bible. He's saying that. Paul is saying that it can't it will not grow on its own. It has to be nourished by his word. It has to be nourished by the Holy Spirit. It has to be started. It has to be, it begins for the Holy Spirit. He places it within us. And it says, and he says, depend upon God and have trust in faith when you have little and when you have much. All things are extended to the Christian by his grace. And then in Romans eight twenty eight, one of my favorite verses just seems to speak to me and, we, and you guys know it by heart. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, whether abounding or whether being abased, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And now, as I promised, as the Catholic priest did, as he used his many weapons of choice in his books, um, the book that my mom gave to me for Christmas so thankful for little did I know when she gifted this to me which I believe was a prompting through the by the Holy Spirit through God it did, it's not by happenstance nothing happens by happenstance guys family, friends, nothing it all has a purpose F.B. Meyer says this and I'll finish with this he says I was first taught this by a gray haired clergyman named Bill Eller I mean no not Bill Eller sorry I misread. Strike that from the recording. (laughs) I was first taught this by a gray-haired clergyman in the study of the deanery at Southampton. Once when tempted to feel great irritation, he told us that he looked up and claimed the patience and gentleness of Christ. Since then, it had become the practice of his life to claim from him the virtue which he felt deficient in himself. In In times of unrest, he would say, Your peace, Lord. In times of irritation, your patience, Lord. In times of temptation, your purity, Lord. In times of weakness, your strength, Lord. For me, it was a message straight from the throne. Until that time, I'd been content with ridding myself of burdens. Now I began to reach out in view of a positive blessing, making each temptation the opportunity for the new acquisition of gold leaf. Try it, dear leader. What words of encouragement. What words of contentment. I thank you for your patience. I pray that through the Holy Spirit that if it's only one thing that I've read or said, that you've been blessed. That you can find something that that's more than milk that may be meat to eat upon. I'm thankful for Pastor Ben and Bill for all that they do, that all that they preach. And all that I've learned and continue to cultivate through listening to their sermons listening to their their preaching to to their and watching their lives and how they live their lives I'm, I'm very thankful and not only that but to each of you I'm thankful to to be a part of a church where we are family in Christ Jesus I truly am it's it's humbling and it's and it's, there's, never, there, there's not a time that I do not rejoice in knowing that you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I thank you for that.